This is Intune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series, an oasis of intimate, innovative, inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. We're recording this edition on Tuesday, February the 26th, and we'll be in conversation with mezzo-soprano Elizabeth Mondragon, a favorite in-series artist and the title character in our upcoming La Paloma at the Wall. I'm Timothy Nelson, friends, artistic director of the in-series and serving as your host today. La Paloma at the Wall, as many of you already know, is our in-series expansion of La Verbena de la Paloma, which is the most famous Spanish zarzuela performed still throughout Latin America as well as in Spain, of course. And we're expanding it into a new theatrical work set at the U.S.-Mexican border at Friendship Park, which is the park uh, right on the border between Tijuana and San Diego, where families of immigrants can come once a week on Sundays to meet uh, their friends or family across the border. It's a bold and a brave new work we're doing. It's one of which I'm extremely proud. And we'll have several free outreach events connected to it, including our March 11th Director's Salon at the Mexican Cultural Institute here on 16th Street with scholars from around the U.S. that specialize on studying border culture and experience. I'll be moderating. Poet and writer Anadini Morales will be on the panel. We'll be talking about the issues of this piece, its genesis, and also its realization. Also, on March 16th from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. at Haiti's Mexican Restaurant, which is on Mount Pleasant Street in Washington, D.C., we'll be holding a traditional Fandango event featuring Mexican music, food, dance, and right at the beginning, we'll also have free lessons on the traditional Mexican harana, which is like a, a form of the guitar. Uh, this is a great way to come out and learn more about the art form and just to socialize and experience some Mexican food and culture. There's more about these events on our website at www.inseries.org. As I've said before, the aspect of the project which I'm most proud is a collaboration with the Latin American Youth Center in Columbia Heights in Washington, D.C. We're collaborating with the LAYC to work with students there who are designing and painting the mural art, which will adorn a 25-foot replica of the border fence. And they'll be adorning it with a, a mural they've designed, which tells of their own immigrant experience, their own experience coming to the United States. Uh, we're seeking extra support for this project, and if you go on our website, you can find more information on how to give specifically to this project through a sponsor a SLAT uh, initiative. SLATs uh, are $150 to sponsor, and they'll have your name on the back. You can sponsor for any giving amount, but for $150, you can have a, a SLAT in your name. Um, and we'd, I'd really personally encourage you to, to go online and learn more. That's www.inseries.org. Now for the fun part of my job, I'm here with Elizabeth Mondragon, mezzo-soprano and favorite of the in-series. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Timothy. Elizabeth, how, how many productions have you done for the in-series? 147. <laughs> no, um, but who's counting? <laughs> I would, let's see. Um... For operas, there have been, uh, there's The Tenderland, um, The Magic Flute, Cecilia Valdez, The Last uh, Zarzuela, this one, um, The ABCs of American Art Song Recital, The Romantics Three Recital, The Berlin and Kern Musical Theater Reviews, 
I've done it uh, close to, I'd, I'd say, probably close to 10 shows. Yeah, and this year you were in Viva Verdi. Oh, and, and Viva Verdi and, and the Mozart, and the, Mozart uh, the Figaro and Four Quartets. Yeah. Yeah, so, so at least 10. You're one of the few in-series artists that crosses all our genres, does them all. I get to scratch every musical itch, and I find that really exciting. So I, the thing I've been um, really eager to ask you about is your process, because I remember for Verdi, you you put a lot of mental energy into thinking about what the piece was about and and why you were staging it. Um, and we then talked about you doing a blog entry even mm-hmm. about that. So I'm wondering for this piece, because you are a character who no one has ever played before. It's a completely original character. No pressure. Um, <laughs> what, what, is, what has your process been like for, for her? Um, well, this one has come... This one has been a little backwards for me. I've had to reverse the process. Um, you can give me just about any language at all, and for singing, I memorize things very quickly. But spoken dialogue has always been very difficult for me to memorize. Really, that's interesting to hear, because on stage you'd never know that. And, and having a spoken part in a language that's not my first language is terrifying. Right, so I made, I, uh, we're of course a company that does a lot of <laughs> Latin American um, uh, programming, mm-hmm. Spanish language programming, and I knew you had done that, and we have a lot of Spanish speakers in the company. I knew you were from Texas, mm-hmm. and that your last name is a last name that's common in Latin America, and I mm-hmm. just made the assumption you spoke Spanish, well, and I, cast you in a I role that has maybe, <laughs> it maybe has more Spanish than any other speaker in, in our p- mm-hmm. plot, so. Yeah, well, the, 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 the part that was scary went beyond the memorization. It has to do with, with syntax, with cadences, with the rhythms of the speech because I listen to Spanish fluently. I grew up hearing it. Uh, my mom attempted to teach me and all my sisters Spanish, but my father didn't speak much Spanish and we went to only English speaking schools. And then I went to school in Boston for college. So as I got older- Your mom was a native Spanish speaker? Yes, that was her first language. Okay, she, she's from? She's from Texas. My whole family has been in Texas since it was Mexico. Wow. Um, we've done ancestry like documents and stuff and, and looked not the 23 and me but just through baptisms birth uh, birth certificates marriages um, I've seen papers for border crossings I, I've seen some documentation that showed a family member who lived in one town in Mexico and then a couple of years later it was the same town but in Texas that was right around the time of the the war of, of Texas gaining its independence right. Um, so it's we've been there forever, and <clears throat> my mother learned Spanish first, and was forced to learn English when she started school. I said you can't go to school unless you speak English. So um, she was about five or six when she learned English, and my father's parents basically didn't want him to even have to go through that, so they didn't teach it to him at all. And he didn't learn it until he got married to my mom, and she was teaching her husband along with her children. But these are families who have lived for a long time on what is now the U.S. side of the border. Yes. But their first language was Spanish. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, at least back, I know at least back to my great, great grandparents, I've seen paperwork from them being all around the same area. From Houston on down through Corpus Christi, 
Brownsville, the whole area that leads into Nuevo Leon in Mexico. Um, so all of that is just to say that I grew up listening to the language, so I've always understood it fluently. I understand nearly 100% of, of what people are telling me. I can pronounce it. I can read it. Uh, but just making sure that I got the right rhythms of the language and that the dialect works because Tex-Mex Spanish sounds very different than Spanish from other regions. Right. And so that was really important to me. So that was part of my research. Um, asking, I mean, the first thing I did was ask Ana, what kind of dialect do you want for this? And when I'm speaking English, should there be an accent since I've been taking diction courses since I was a kid. Right, yeah, as a singer. I've always had a very neutral singer accent, and I didn't want it to sound mawkish. Can I ask what your... I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you got the script <laughs> <laughs> and saw that first scene. There was a little swearing involved. <laughs> that are giant, giant chunks of text in Spanish that then are translated. And it's an amazing experience to sit there and have to mm -hmm. witness this being translated. Um, but I can't imagine what a job that is for you. Translating overall was was very easy because I did know what I was reading. There were only, I would say, three words that I didn't understand, uh, not including the cachiquet, um, which I'd never even heard of before. Yeah, which which for our <laughs> listeners, it, you're not only speaking Spanish, but you also speak in an indigenous Mayan dialect. Um, because you're a woman, you play a woman from Guatemala who um, notionally has, has a, a native language herself. Mm -hmm. um, so when I saw that, it was just the sheer amount of text that immediately made my heart palpitate. And then I just thought, okay, I'm going to do this methodically, but I'm going to have to really start with learning the dialogue first. Like, I'll learn the music, but as far as memorizing... I need to do this and um, had a couple of helpful tips from people who do a lot more straight theater mm -hmm. on their memorization process and really it's it ended up being the same as the way I do music especially art songs I'm telling a story so it's chronological and as long as I know where in the story I am it's easier to know what line comes next mm -hmm. and to figure out what kind of emotion I want to infuse in it and then it gets even more helpful once the other actors come into it because I'm reacting to as opposed to just speaking a monologue what um, since you're the first person to ever play this role what um, you have a greater insight into who she is as a character who she is as a human being mm -hmm. can you tell us about oh um, well I mean I I don't I don't have any children of my own so it really was a process trying to figure out what I would feel like if I had somebody very close to me taken from me, especially taken from me where I, where I know they were actually taken from me as opposed to, say, a child who ran away or something. I, I mean, loss is loss but to know that there was a malicious intent behind it and that there's a good chance that I might not see that person again. That, that was 
that was difficult to process, but it gave me something to work with, imagining how much, that. How much hope does she have as she waits there? I think she has enormous hope, an enormous amount of hope, because I don't think you go through what she's going through. I mean, I've been reading these stories of people who are making these journeys, and you don't do it just because you heard it's better on the other side. Yeah. These are people who are leaving because they have no choice. They really, it's either stay and be assaulted regularly or find a way out. And for a lot of, a lot of families, particularly a lot of women, they're doing it for their children. I feel like if Paloma didn't have a child, she may never have made that journey. Right. She's only doing it because she's been threatened that her child will be killed. I'm having the weirdest experience as, as I sit here listening to you say that because because I'm having a memory of a story of a woman and a whole discussion about whether this woman would have come if she didn't if she didn't need to come for her children and I can't remember if it's a conversation we had in rehearsal or if it's something I heard on the news yesterday morning. It, Honestly, that's, it could and be that's either this whole or. experience is uh -huh. there's every what we do every night in rehearsal is then repeated in the morning on the news when I hear it's it's a very surreal experience to mm -hmm. be making something that's so topical. I mean, I, I've never had an experience like it. Neither have I. It's it's amazing. It's it's a lot of um, it's beyond food for thought. I mean, it's. It's something to draw, for lack of a better word, it's something to draw inspiration well, do from you, when telling have you the been, story. Um, have you been particularly attuned to news stories to seek out um, empathetic models? or? Well, ever since, ever, ever since uh, last year when the stories about all the children being separated from their parents at the border started coming out, I started reading more and more about it. And I'm a little bit of a political junkie so I spent a lot of time reading and listening to the news um, so I wouldn't say there are any specific stories that I've been drawn to or I've heard I just have been consuming them so to speak over sure. time and of course it's not an accident I mean Anna based yeah. it on a lot of stories that mm -hmm. she'd read that she put into one can you tell us briefly because you we I only get the translation I don't speak Spanish uh -huh. what is her story of of traveling from Guatemala to to America? Uh, briefly, she, um, her husband went to America. She doesn't say why he went. Uh, I guess it's assumed because she says that he sent money to her a couple of times. He probably went to go help the family out to have a better job, perhaps. That part isn't really explained, but the impetus for her leaving is after two years, she didn't hear anything from him. And people in her village said, your husband owed money when he left. And these are not good people, and they're saying, if you don't pay us, we're going to kill you and your daughter. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was really her only choice. She had to leave, bring her daughter with her through this dangerous journey. So um, the first thing that happened along her journey is when they were leaving, they had already heard from other people that it's a dangerous journey, there may be people who try to attack you. So all the women cut their hair, they take birth control pills. All the little girls, they cut their hair. Also, they were just trying to make everybody look as masculine as possible to avoid attack, which apparently doesn't always work. 
Yeah, which um, is that the line you're alluding to is is for me one of the most powerful lines in the scene. That yeah, she said it does. It doesn't matter what it didn't matter what we did. Yeah, we, they, it never occurred to us. They even did that to the boys. And so, what's horrible? Sorry to interrupt, but oh, what's horrible sure, about sure. that is I just ten minutes ago read a story about thousands of cases of sexual violence against children in the detention centers you know, for the last three years. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're just being kept there for a slaughter. I mean, even if they are not killing them physically, they well, are, they are killing them slaughter. spiritually, yeah. emotionally. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's so difficult. And it's hard to even imagine if we find it difficult to stomach this just in reading these stories and uh, performing or telling the stories, I can't. I can't even grasp what it would it would be like to have to go through that, or to even know somebody who's going through that. I don't know anybody who has had that happen to them. So, it, yeah, something Anna uh, in our conversation last week stumbled over was at some moment, at some point, there is a human being taking a child out of the arms of another human being, and as much as you can understand everything else. I don't understand that, like how. Um, the other part of the journey story that she shares is that because she was a, a model captive, that she was given a job in these homes where other women were being kept, other women and children. And the job is something that I feel she's ashamed of because you hear her defend herself. She was basically given the job of beating the other women who didn't give the whereabouts of the families or who didn't obey orders. And whatever orders those were that they were supposed to obey, we can only imagine. But she says, I had to um, basically whip them with a a wooden uh, board across the butt. This is in Mexico along the journey? Yes, in that in the house that she was in, um, in Tamaulipas. Tamaulipas is very close to the border of Texas and Mexico. Okay. She starts, uh, I was looking at the geography of where she started, and Guatemala is about um, a couple days journey to Tamaulipas. Tenosique, Mexico first. Uh, she went there first. And then she went to Tamaulipas and each time she was on a, a bus or a train or something, there was quite a bit of travel involved. But she's pretty far from where she ends up. Mm-hmm. Right, because she crossed, presumably she crossed into America. She crossed in, in Texas. In Texas. And that's where her daughter was taken. Okay. And, but that's where she was at the house. She was at a house, uh, I don't know if the house was in Texas or in Tamaulipas right over the border, but that's where she was charged with whipping the women who didn't obey. And her defense is, if I didn't do it right, they would have beaten me. And so she tries to put her best foot forward and said that, you know, that they smelled like animals. So she tried to clean her daughter's face so they'd look presentable when they were met by the people who maybe would supposedly help them. The um, the officer Ortiz, who I assume is a border patrol officer, mm-hmm. um, and he's who took her. Daughter. Yes, said with the excuse, your daughter's filthy, I'm going to take her so she can go have a bath. And when she questioned that, he said, all the children go alone. 
she trusted that and I, I feel like that line is the one that just kills me that the children always go alone mm-hmm. um, and that's the last time she sees her daughter and then she is deported then she's when she speaks to the the border agent um, who appears at the beginning that the translator is communicating with he says we have no idea where your daughter is but I see here that you have family in San Diego so maybe it's best that you go to Tijuana which is right below San Diego and if we get word at least you'll be near family so we know how to reach you right. and that's how she ends up in California when she started out in Guatemala and went what up to do, Texas what do you make of this line I mean one of the lines that sticks out in the uh, in honest treatment that first scene is that the people died of solitude and, and this I actually, and maybe I'm going off on my own tangent here, but this idea of solitude is, of course, a recurring theme in Latin American um, mm-hmm. literature. Mm-hmm. And, and I've never asked Anna if there's a connection in her mind in that, but what do you as an artist make out that line? My mind is solitude. when you said that, because then I thought about Garcia Marquez, <laughs> yes, and Bellica, which is one of my favorite books, I yeah. love that book. Um, I mean, loneliness is really, really powerful. And while... In Latin American art, it is a very present theme, as it is in Eastern European art, I think. A lot of Russians, very heavy. And I was just talking to my, my, my pastor yesterday about how in the UK now there's a position, a minister of loneliness, because they, there's, they consider loneliness now an epidemic. There was a video put out by The Guardian last week, a little animated video about loneliness being a disease and that it doesn't matter if you have I mean it does matter but whether or not you have friends or a job or people around you that loneliness is an internal and often mental Mm -hmm. illness type of disease that can really affect people so even if they're surrounded by others and noise the inside, their own personal experience is a very isolated one. And often exacerbated by um, cyber noise, by social media, by mm-hmm. these things which can be isolated. Yeah, retreating into yourself, but not able to silence the noise of all of the information going in. Because in our, in our interview with Anna last week, she talked about how our inspiration to create you as a character actually came from the fact that in the original Verbenedera Paloma, there's this figure that's got no role in the play, but this figure of the Virgin of, of Solitude who's been thrown away. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I, you, you sort of then embody that role, and you also embody Daniel, as we tell the, the narrative of, of the mm-hmm. Chase Susanna, mm-hmm. Susanna and the Elders. I wonder what it's like, or maybe it's not like anything special, but I wonder if it is what it feels like to, to have that weight on you. I mean, you're this character, you're this Guatemalan woman, you're also an embodiment of the Holy Mother, you're also an embodiment of the Prophet Daniel. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely less in touch with Daniel than I am with the idea of the Holy Mother having lost a child. Mm-hmm. And also the lost innocence of Susanna. Susanna, like I'm, I'm doing Mozart all of a sudden. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Took us a long time to figure yeah. out whether it was one Su- or two. Susanna? <laughs> Susanna and Susanna, all of the Susannas. Um, So I think of her and her sister Casa as lost children, even if they're nearly grown women. 
they are lost ch children being abused mm -hmm. and they've lost their parents so their parents lost them um, it's much like the inscription that Anna put at the beginning of the script mm -hmm. the dedication to people who have lost their children parents who have lost their children children who have lost their parents and those who have experienced these losses or something to that effect I yeah. find that a very succinct way of describing who Paloma is she's she's lost a child the Virgen lost a child the parents of Susana and Casta lost children and vice versa and what is it like what is the role like vocally vocally I love it um, I, feel, I feel it's perfect right now for me vocally how is that well it's it has a nice, um, a very nice fishy range. It doesn't really, it lives in the middle. It's great for a mezzo. You have a few higher notes here, a few lower notes there, but it really just kind of rides right in the middle in the strongest part of a mezzo's voice. And so you can do, I can do a lot more musically, I feel, when it's, just handed to me like that mm -hmm. because I don't have to think as much about how am I going to negotiate being this quiet in this part of my range or this loud in this part of my range whereas when you're in such a comfortable part of your range you have such a great great an abundance of dynamic right. you possibilities can do you can do a lot with it mm -hmm. and so I really like that a lot one of the things I love is that I mean, of course, I, I've said your role doesn't exist in the original, but there is this character who sings this music in the original, which is this Andalusian woman mm -hmm. who has no name, who's come from. And she just sings this one small bit. And she what just I, comes from afar. Yeah, she sings this one thing, and then she's <laughs> never there again. What I love about it, Anna, is taking that character and made it the main character, the mm -hmm. title character, um, and has sort of unfolded out of that music um, a larger role and then giving you other bits of music mm -hmm. so there's a there's a beautiful I think in the original that lullaby that the janitor sings mm -hmm. um, is four bars it's, eight bars it's or something. gorgeous and we just decided to repeat it over and over again and then Anna thought actually you should join in as if you're singing a lullaby to your lost child and is there another place where she's giving you I guess the Julian song. Julian song, uh-huh. It, it, it's almost, it's a lullaby in itself, too. I close my eyes, see your face, reach for you. You're listening. She knows that most likely her, her daughter's thinking about her also. Right. And it's it's kind of cosmic attempt at reaching connection. out to somebody, connection, reaching out to somebody who's not there, but you know is there in your heart and that person's probably thinking about you and it's also a matter of hope you have to I imagine you have to believe that that person is alive and thinking of you instead yeah. of thinking the worst has happened yeah it's very much actually about how I've always read butterfly that what it's actually about is what happens when your life depends upon the sustenance of a single hope then yeah. that if you didn't have that hope you would you would just cease to exist Mm -hmm. um, one thing I find really interesting in the script um, is the change in kind of a mantra line that Paloma says during her tale of her journey to, with, to the um, translator and the guard. She says, um, Pensé que lo peor ya había pasado. I thought the worst had happened. And then the very last time she says it, 
She says, creía que lo peor ya había pasado, which means I believed mm-hmm. the worst had happened. And just the difference between thinking and believing gives it a shift because it's the one part I feel where there's like a tiny crack in her hope. Right. It's interesting that you, I've never noticed till now, but do you remember there's this line in Lear also, mm-hmm. which is I think Edgar's <coughs> line about um, who can say this is the worst when worse I was and worst I yet may be. It's the same mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. Um, and then at the end you sing La Guacamaya, which of course is not in the original, no. which is one of our three <laughs> Um, traditional Mexican songs has been inserted and you have a particular challenge there oh my gosh because it's, it's really the fast one. <laughs> it's the hardest one it's at the end it's really fast uh-huh. and in Spanish it it's easier it's in easier <laughs> but in English I mean in Spanish of course you can elide a lot of words that end in vowels and begin in vowels mm-hmm. so to get the same amount of information which mm-hmm. would be roughly the same amount of syllables mm-hmm. into into that that tune without any elisions. Yep. That's really difficult. It is. I'm almost there. I have You're about, almost there. It's I have amazing. Like two measures that I'm still getting tongue tied on. And I I'm interested you haven't you haven't now performed the whole thing together yet. But uh-huh. I'm interested to know maybe we'll have you back and ask you what um it feels like to finally at the end have that release of energy. And Guacamai is a totally different character. It's very similar. I think I said this to you. It's very similar to <clears throat> Penelope in mm-hmm. The Return of Ulysses, where she sings three hours of recit until the moment she finally recognizes that it's her husband after 20 years, and then she has an aria. Wow. And what is it like to like release in that way? And Guacamai, in a way, is a release like that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, um, do you have any sense of... Or are you just... You just <laughs> I haven't gotten there like yet. Counting like that. You're not I haven't a place gotten to there yet that. because... Right now, my release is coming at the phone call. Right. My release is happening when I hear they found her. They mm-hmm. found my daughter. I'm going to be reunited. Which is after. Which is before. Right before Guacamaya. Right before. And Guacamaya happens before you see your daughter again while yes. you're waiting. So right now, I'm having my release at that phone call. Like That's where, oh my God, everything's going to be okay. And then since I'm not yet ready... For guacamole, <laughs> I get to it, and that release has disappeared. You're like, oh fudge! Yes, <laughs> and, and it'll happen again. And I'm on the verses where I feel more comfortable. I am elated, and it is such a happy song. And having having the dancers there, and one thing I'm absolutely just loving, loving, loving about this is because of where I grew up, and because of the traditions in my family, being Mexican American traditions a lot of this style of the Mexican music is very familiar to me. Um, Every year when I was a child in grammar school, up until grammar school, I always performed in some kind of Cinco de Mayo program. Mm -hmm. And they would always teach the kids some kind of little flocorico dance. And my mom would make me a dress every year, a new skirt and top with big ruffles. And so it's just one of those nice memories. And so I hear that music and I'm automatically transported to something that was always a very happy memory. Um, Cause that, that was one of the musical influences when I was a kid. I didn't sing any kind of opera or classical music until I was a teenager. Before that I only sang pop songs and mariachi and R&B. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, it's a, so it's a sort of homecoming. Kind a sense of. memory homecoming. It is, it is. And um, 
So just some of the words they sing, and then the the Sonharocho band, hearing that that kind of music. I mean, it's like any fiesta type celebration you'd go to in Texas as a kid. We had a family member who sang with a band like that, and was a wonderful guitarist and beautiful tenor voice. And to this day, I remember him singing. Um, Las Mañanitas, which is a traditional Mexican birthday song, mm-hmm. Latin American birthday song, and Cielito Lindo to me at a picnic for, I think it might have been my 15th birthday, and we had a big picnic at this park that we used to go to every Easter, and he and his band came and they serenaded me. And wow. Yeah. Also with Cielito Lindo. That's mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, so I, I have a lot of really, really wonderful memories tied up to this type of music. And, um, and I think it's true what Anna says about um, styles of music being, I don't know if she said like indigenous to ourselves, that even if you spend years away from something or perhaps didn't even grow up amongst that influence, hearing it brings something up that's primal. Absolutely. And it's true. I, I think the very first time... Um, even just this, the Spanish background in my family, the Spaniards since, you know, we all know the story of the crazy conquistadores that came down and said, hey, yes, we're God, give us your gold, and then killed everybody. Um, very proud. Uh, uh, the first time I sang Carmen, I felt mm. completely connected to the feeling of Spanish music. Even though it was written by a French guy. Yeah, but he's certainly but he was writing Spanish. That rhythms. style, yeah. yeah, that style has always felt very natural to me. And um, so I'm just, I'm having a blast doing this. And I'm so excited. I'm bringing my mom up for it from oh, Texas. Great. And she's super excited to hear her songs that she's familiar with and to see the dancing and to hear her baby. Well, Elizabeth Mondragon, thanks so much for joining us today. We can't, I am. I feel really blessed to have you in the production and Thank can't you. wait to see you in it in full. And I feel very blessed to be involved here and, and so humbled really that, that I was asked to do this because I, I just, I have those moments where I'm just saying, I'm not worthy. You know, <laughs> well, I feel I'll like t- somebody else should be doing this. You are worthy. <laughs> You're amazing. Look forward to seeing you in it. Thanks. You've been listening to Intune, the in-series podcast. That was me, Timothy Nelson, in conversation with mezzo-soprano Elizabeth Mondragon, who's taking the title role in La Paloma at the Wall. You can catch this show at Gala Hispanic Theater on 16th Street in Washington, D.C., opening March the 23rd and playing through the 31st. More information at our website, www.inseries.org. You'll also find there a complete listing of our outreach activities, including a director's salon March 11th at the Mexican Cultural Institute and a community fandango music, poetry, dance, food event at Hades Restaurant on March the 16th from 4 to 8 p.m. Check us out on social media, Facebook backslash InSeries, or on Instagram. We have a lot of content about this show, including informational videos on Zarzuela, on Son Jorocha, and on other facets of this new production we're in the midst of making. Thanks for listening, and remember, Rabindranath Tagore tells us civility is the first act of making art. Go and make your lives civil. <laughs>